Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Francesco Cotrini. Francesco is the author of Adam Burrell, 1602 to 1665, A Collegiate's Attempt to Reform Christianity, a big, important new book just published by Brill at the end of last year. Francesco, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Crawford, and I'm very happy to be here talking about this book. Absolutely. Um, before we talk about this really important book on Adam Burrell, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you come to become an historian, and particularly, how did you come to write this book? Okay, yes. So, uh, I was a MA student at the University of Macerata in Italy, and in the history of philosophy. And my former supervisor uh, is an expert in uh, philosophy of Baruch Spinoza. Uh, so we were trying to understand what was the background, uh, the intellectual background leading to uh, the philosopher Spinoza. And we were trying to understand if there were new material to write uh, something new about the early years of Spinoza. So the 1650s, early 1660s, when Spinoza was banished by the Jewish community and he was residing in Amsterdam. So I started to uh, look for new sources. I came to know about the collegians. Many Spinoza uh, friends were collegians, were belonging to this group of uh, Christians in Amsterdam. And I reached the figure of Borel and no one studied uh, Adam Borel before me. The, the The first unique uh, biography was dated 1911, so it was quite old. And but the name of Borel was popping out uh, in every study about Spinoza early years. And so, with my supervisor, we decided to make a new study about Borel, his life, and his thought. Very good. So, Borel is known, I suppose, in the footnotes of history as a friend of Spinoza, but your new book. A Collegian's attempt to reform Christianity shows that he's a really major figure in his own right, isn't he? And he's he's behind a lot of the activities that are happening, not only in Amsterdam, but across different parts of Europe through his correspondence network and through other institutions he's involved in. Who was Adam Burrell and why do you think he matters today? Well, uh, Adam Burrell was, uh, as I said, a member of the collegian movement. This movement, uh, born in the Dutch Republic in the 17th century, of Christians belonging to different denominations. So Borel was not actually a member of any church. He was raised as a reformed, but in the end he was not belonging to any church. And he established these meetings in Amsterdam, where people belonging to several Churches to several sects could meet together to just discuss, read the scripture, and discuss freely uh, about religious matters. And as you said, Borel, uh, it was at the center of the um, European intellectual milieu of the time. He had very good connections with England. He was a close friend of people such as Samuel Hartlib, uh, John Dury. Henry Holdenburg, Robert Boyle, 
And at the same time, it was the center of the intellectual milieu of the Dutch Republic. Uh, he was the one who established these meetings of collegians in Amsterdam. And he had a major role in the development of the Mennonite community in, uh, in Amsterdam. It is quite surprising that uh, he did not receive any scholar, scholarly attention before me, honestly. Now, I, I love the way you begin the book with that discussion of historiography relating to debates about the origins of the Enlightenment. And I think one of the things I find most fascinating about the book is the way that you describe Burrell's interest in different kinds of science, not only through, not only at a theoretical level through Hartlib type correspondence, but also his own practical activities, for example, in, in optics and grinding lenses. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and perhaps help us understand how you see Burrell fitting into these cultures of early enlightenment and, and how perhaps how, how his work challenges some of the conclusions that historians have come to about the early years of enlightenment yes so yeah uh, borel was quite uh, it, it was at the same time engaged in theoretical activities writing pamphlets writing books but at the same time he was also a very pra practical person so he was interested in uh, he had some interest in alchemy for instance he, he was involved in some alchemical experiment uh, together with the art clip circle um, about creating this liquid that could uh, that could make uh, water uh, taste better during long voyages by sea. And he, at some point, probably for economical reasons, he started to green lenses as a way of living, I think. Uh, I haven't found definitive proof to actually state that he was doing that for living, but it is quite likely because in the 16, late 1640s, he had many economical uh, problems and grinding lenses was something new at the time that could uh, afford him uh, a living. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, so he was also interested in uh, Jewish studies. He was a major scholar in uh, Hebrew language, and he was involved involved directly with um, rabbis in Amsterdam, Menasseh ben Israel and Jacob Yudalehon. Uh, together with them, Borel uh, punctuated the Jewish test, text Mishnah, and published it in 1646 in Amsterdam. Uh, he, he then kept uh, working on the Mishnah. He, he was working with other Jewish people like the Abendana brothers to translate this text in other languages. They were think they probably made a Portuguese or Spanish translation, which was then used to make a new Latin translation of this Jewish text in order to make make the text available also to non-Jewish people. So for, for these many reasons, he was a man between uh, theoretical activities and practical, uh, practical matters. And in this regard, I think that he was, he is a fitting example of a early Enlightenment scholar, he was not only interested in, the, in religion, he was also interested in science. 
and in promoting knowledge among people by translating works that were not accessible to everyone. And broadly speaking, I think that he and his collegian circle in Amsterdam, but also the other circles of collegians in other Dutch cities, uh, had a major impact in the, in the early Enlightenment period. They were giving uh, a practical space of open discussion to people uh, in a time where the French saloons and the English coffee houses were not established yet. We are speaking about the 1640s, 1650s. Uh, there was no kind of established public sphere as we intended it today. Uh, instead, they were meeting in uh, private houses or renting houses to meet in order to just speak about uh, everything that was related to, to religion. They, their habits was to meet together open the meeting with a prayer, then choose a passage from the scripture. Someone would, would read uh, the passage. And then everyone that wanted to say something about that passage, about the, the interpretation or something that um, made an impact that passage on him and wanted to share his opinion, could freely do so. Mm. And from time to time, we can see people belonging to different, uh, very different denominations uh, taking part to the meetings of the religions. Uh, there were Mennonites, there were Quakers, uh, there were uh, remonstrants. Uh, from time to time, even the Reformed uh, attended the meeting, often just to see what they were doing and trying to find ways to attack them. But still, it was an open, an open space for discussion for both men and women in a period where uh, the public sphere was just beginning to, to be established. So from what you describe, uh, Francesco, Burrell becomes this really central figure in creating these early spaces for discussion. Um, principally about religion, um, but but yet with these broader interests in science and practical, um, practical mechanical activities too. Could you tell us a little bit about Burrell's background? How did he become this figure? What do we know about his early education, his his early life? We do not know much about his early life. Uh, there are not many sources. Uh, on which we can rely to describe Borel's life before the 1640s. But I found out that he, will, he, he attended, he was registered two times at Leiden University. At first, uh, probably as a student of languages, so ancient uh, languages. That is why he became so um, famous for knowing uh, Hebrew, but also Greeks, for instance. Uh, the second time, it is not clear what he was studying because uh, in the description of his enrollment, uh, there is a description that is not very common for enrollment in those times. He was probably attending at the same time uh, different courses between theology, philosophy and languages. And how he became what he became... Uh, since his early life, he, he showed interest in heterodox Christianity. Uh, in the 1620s, he went to London, probably to co continue his studies in Oxford. 
And when he was in England, he came into contact with a prophet, uh, Ziegler, who claimed to be a member of the Rosicrucian uh, movement. Uh, and because of these associ associations, Borel had some problems. He was probably uh, put in jail. And, and after that, he started to think about ways in which he could uh, improve Christianity. He was seeing that Christianity was torn apart by uh, debates, by struggles between different denominations, and he was looking for means to overcome them. And I think that while he was in Leiden, he probably became uh, in contact with the collegian circle near Leiden in Reisburg, and he probably started to be aware of um, collegian ideas and step by step. He developed this new approach to Christianity. That's fascinating. So, if his life goal was to purify Christianity, to reform Christianity, why did he develop such a strong interest in Judaism, Jewish studies, and Hebrew language? Probably was aiming to um, convert Jewish people to, to Christianity. Uh, we do not have a definitive evidence to state why he was so interested in Judaism. So for instance, there are no strong, there is no strong evidence uh, that he was sharing millennial uh, ideas. So for instance, that uh, the conversion of the Jews was necessary to promote Christ's reign on earth, but it was uh, it was quite close to other people belonging to millennial uh, circles, uh, such as Daniel Debrenn in Amsterdam or more or less John Dury in uh, in England. Uh, so he, he perhaps even if he was not uh, a millennialist himself, he was still trying to push everyone to embrace Christianity. And I think that this is also one of the reasons why he, at some point, he started to develop uh, ideas closer to rationalism, and he started discussing about uh, natural law, natural morals, how uh, Christian ethics is very similar or the same as natural laws. So if people can actually follow Christ's teaching just by relying on natural reason, everyone could easily follow Christ's teaching. Every, everyone could easily be uh, a Christian. I think that, that this was his goal, and it was his goal when dealing with, uh, with Judaism. Um, there, is, there is some evidence from his letters uh, in which he says that he was hoping that by translating the Jewish text into different language, it would, it would have been easier for Christians and Jews to come, in, to come in contact and to see that their religion was not that different in the end. They just had to overcome some, some of their basic tenets, of course, but still. So that, that, that's really interesting. So uh, Borel develops this very rationalist view of religion. Does that, does that interest in rational discussion or um, empirical knowledge 
also impact his involvement with the Samuel Hartlib circle? Yes, I think so. Uh, over the years, he became a major figure in the in the Hartlib circle. He was very well connected with many uh, people belonging to to them, and I think that the first interest uh, by John Dury uh, by Samuel Hartlib in Borel was because of his Irelicism. So Borel came into contact for the first time with John Dury in 1632, when John Dury was in a mission in Europe to find means to unify the Protestant churches. And I think that this uh, similar goal of reforming and uniting uh, Christianity was the common ground between the, the first common ground between Borel and the Artrib Circle. But then they uh, developed several other interests together. So the Artrib Circle was also very interested in uh, Judaism, in converting the Jews. And they were behind uh, the project of translating the Mishnah in uh, Portuguese and then in Latin. Uh, Borel was quite close to Artley Banduri when he was in London in the 1650s and there were discussions about admitting the Jews in England once again. Uh, together with Samuel Artlib and particularly with other people like Harry Oldenburg and Robert Boyle, Borel started writing uh, this big treatise that he never completed. He remained in manuscript form in which we can see the first a clear uh, development of rationalist ideas, where he's arguing that Christian religion can be also proved uh, by natural reason alone, because there are some tenets, some teaching by Christ that are rational, so people can follow them by only using natural reason. Hmm. So yes, I think that the, the Artlib cycle was quite interested also in, uh, in the rationalist ideas developed by Borel. Could you tell us a little bit more, Francesco, about the collegiate movement? Was it a movement of rationalists in the same way? Did a person have to be a rationalist in religious terms to join the movement or to, to benefit from it? Not at all, actually. Uh, there were many people who were, were not uh, rationalists at all. Uh, the vast majority of people attending the meetings of the collegians in Amsterdam were Mennonites. So, uh, pacifist and Baptist, we can, we can name them. Um, the collegians were born in 16, around 1619, after, uh, in the aftermath of the Synod, Synod of Dortrecht. And they were just looking for a space to come together as Christians and to discuss about religion. And everyone was welcomed. So if you were a Socinian and you were uh, advocating for uh, anti-Trinitarian ideas and you were attacking other people because of their Trinitarian beliefs, you, you uh, were welcome to discuss about these topics in, uh, in collision circles. If you were a strict uh, Mennonite, so you believed uh, in the Mennonite confession of faith, you were welcome to join the meetings and discuss about your, your opinion. If you were a millenarist and you were waiting for Christ's uh, reign on earth and 
you saw that the passage of the scripture read in a, in a certain day was leading to that belief. You could share your own belief in that meeting. The, the, the only principle of, I think that the main and only principle of the collisions was freedom of prophesying. So freedom to read and interpret the scripture as one uh, so fit. This is why they were also uh, practicing religious toleration. Uh, as I said, everyone was welcomed. Even the Quakers, uh, once they reached Amsterdam, uh, one of the first things that they did was to start attending uh, the collegiate meeting and they were welcomed in the collegiate meetings. So the collegiate, it, it is an open question who the collegians were. So there is no definition of who was a collegiant and who was not. It is something that perhaps uh, further research might uh, give a proper answer to. But I think that, broadly speaking, the collegians were just this movement of people uh, trying to overcome differences uh, between confessions uh, to unite Christianity using some very fundamental uh, dogmas that everyone could teach. In the end, this dogma was simply believing that Christ, uh, the religion of Christ, was the true religion. So, of course, it was a movement of Christians. But this was their, their basic tenet. Everyone that believed in Christ could join them and discuss freely about any other uh, dogmas. So one of the things your book shows uh, in a very interesting way is how the Reformed Church, especially in Amsterdam, you use the minutes of, of uh, various bodies, church bodies in Amsterdam, but how the Reformed Church, especially in Amsterdam, regarded the group as Sassinian, and th the same claim was made in other cities as well. So they regarded the group as necessarily anti-Trinitarian. Sometimes they added that they were Anabaptists, sometimes they added that they were Mennonites, uh, and so on. But, but the claim, the consistent claim, was always that they were Sassinian. Was that, was that necessarily true? Uh, it was not. Um, it is true that many, uh, many of the members attending regularly the meetings of the collision in Amsterdam were Socinians, or at least they were anti-Trinitarians. Of course, uh, all the anti-Trinitarians in the 17th century were, were named as Socinians. But at the same time, for instance, Borel never made uh, uh, an anti-Trinitarian statement. Quite the contrary, it seems that at some point he was accused of anti-Trinitarianism, but John Dury uh, then asserted clearly that he was cleared of all charges, so he was not found as, a, as an anti-Trinitarian. The fact that uh, the Reformed Church in Amsterdam uh, called the collegians, the, the meetings of the collegians, uh, meeting of Socinians. I think it is part uh, because Socinians was like a very uh, slenderous and broad concept in the 17th century. So if you had an enemy for religious reasons, you could call him a Socinian, and that would uh, raise among the, the readers, among the listeners, uh, prejudice about him, about his, him or her, about uh, their confession, about their religious beliefs. 
and especially in Amsterdam, uh, in the, the Dutch Republic, this was very important because in 1653, uh, there was a law against, against Socinianism, against the publication of Socinian books. So if someone was charged with, Socin with Socinianism, it was a huge problem for him or her. And I think that one of the reasons why the Dutch Reformed Church kept calling the meetings of the religion as Socinians was for this reason, because if they were Socinians, they could be prohibited by law meeting and they would stop uh, spreading their errors. But again, there were many anti-Trinitarians among them. And once the Socinians were banished in, uh, in Poland in 1658, Uh, many went to the Dutch Republic, many uh, went to Amsterdam, and many uh, joined the collision cycles. We are talking about some years after, so the 1660s, but still the, the, the collisions as this very broad group welcoming everyone was another place for the religious exiles coming from Poland to establish new, new relationships especially in a country where they knew no one except for their families, perhaps. Hmm. And of course, by the 1660s, Burrell was coming to the end of his life, wasn't he? Yes. What do we know about his later years? Again, we do not know much about his later years. Uh, we know that he was working hard on this manuscript, uh, on this treatise, trying to prove that... Uh, basically that Christian religion was the true religion. Um, and he was working hard also on the, um, on, the Jew, on the translation of the Jewish Mishnah. Besides that, I think that he was just keep uh, alive his, uh, his collegiate meetings in Amsterdam. One of the last Um, archival sources that I have found is the name of Borel in a contract for a new apartment to uh, allow the, the collisions to meet there. And this was in 1665, the same year uh, in which he died. So, and he, he was also involved in some polemics in the 1660s, so the later part of his life, some polemics with, uh, uh, with the Quakers. Uh, after the first friendly relationships between Quakers and Collegians, uh, there were the first clashes, especially because of the alleged uh, belief by the Quakers to be inspired uh, by God. Uh, unfortunately, I, unfortunately, I think that the Collegians uh, did embrace this prejudice against the, the Quakers. Notwithstanding their very broad approach to, to Christianity. Um, so he had some polemics with the Quakers. He wrote a new pamphlet against a reformed minister, um, Samuel Desmarais, who attacked him personally uh, in the 1650s. So in the last years of his life, Borel dedicated himself to writing, basically, and to pushing forward the meetings of the collisions. 
Well, Francesco, it's been wonderful to talk to you today about your new book, Adam Burrell, A Collegiate's Attempt to Reform Christianity, just published by Brill. Um, it's, a, it's a great piece of work and, and I hope lots of people read it because it's got the potential really to reshape the way we think, not just about early enlightenment, but about so much of religious radical cultures um, in this period too. Before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? What can we look forward to, to seeing from you next? Yes, so I'm working uh, within an ERC project uh, based at Queen's University Belfast, uh, titled War and Supernature in Early Modern Europe. And the goal of the project is to examine uh, discussions about just war in the 16th and 17th centuries. And as part of this project, I am looking more deeply at the Socinian uh, political thought. Uh, so were the Socinians uh, discussing about just war? And if they did, in which terms? The, were they discussing about religious tolerance? And if so, in which terms? So my new, uh, my new works, uh, I've written a paper about reassessing uh, the approach of the Socinians to the just war theory, uh, proving that they moved away from the early pacifism of the 16th century during the 30 years war. And I, I'm now working on a new paper about uh, the main pamphlet produced by the Socinians in favor of religious tolerance, which was Johan Krell, Vindication for Freedom of Religion. And I'm examining the intellectual background in uh, Poland, leading to the writing of this pamphlet. Well, those projects both sound fascinating, Francesco, and we wish you every success with them and hope to be able to read them in due course. Um, thanks for coming on to the show today to talk about this great new book, Adam Burrell, 1602 to 1665, A Collegiate's Attempt to Reform Christianity, just published by Brill. A great piece of work, a great read, and learned a huge amount from it. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you very much, Crawford. It was a pleasure. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.